If some of you follow me on social media, you know that I have started my U.S. Soccer Federation D license. And when I started that course, I actually had two coaches come up to me and ask me about the notebook that I was using during the first weekend of the course. Of course, I'm referring to my Duke Tig brand notebook. Both coaches asked, where did I get it and how do I get one? So if you go to duketigbrand.com and check out their newly redesigned website, and upon checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19, and I can save you 10% on your next order. Just like those coaches, you can plan sessions, you can take notes, and you can keep all of your information in one place, easy to follow. DukeTigBrand.com, use the promo code BROADWATER19. This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Welcome to season two of the On The Touchline podcast. And before we get going, I just want to say my sincere thanks for listening, for engaging with the show, for sharing the show on social media, and for telling folks in the soccer community about the work that we're trying to do here at On The Touchline. Uh, it really does mean the world to me when you do that. And the whole goal of this show is to make the soccer world a little bit smaller, to introduce you to coaches, to players, to influencers, to people in the game that make soccer what it is, the best sport in the world. So a few new items for season two. Uh, from time to time, you'll be hearing from two co-hosts that will be joining me on a number of our episodes. So John Townsend, who is the guest in this particular episode, uh, will be joining me from time to time as a co-host, as well as Aaron Rodgers, who was a guest in season one of the show. So some weeks you're just going to get me and a guest. Some weeks you'll get John and I and a guest, and some weeks you'll get uh, Aaron and I as a guest. And who knows, if we're feeling wild and crazy, maybe we'll have all three of us on with a guest sometime. I thought a lot about after season one, how could I continue to push the envelope and push the boundaries of this show? And one of the things I thought about was bringing additional voices in the soccer community that have different perspectives into the conversation. As I got to know John and interact with John, I thought he would be a fantastic fit. And the same goes for Aaron. Aaron brings a great perspective when it comes to coaching at a very high level in the women's game. And the fact that he looks at things very much through a coaching lens, but also through a team building culture lens as well. I think you will find season two to have some absolutely fantastic guests. And we will continue this theme that we started in season one of trying to deliver high quality content to you, the listener. Also, you can probably expect some written content in addition to a weekly podcast. So the podcast will come out every Wednesday, 
just like we have previously. Some weeks you will get an additional episode, uh, but we will stick to that Wednesday schedule, um, as I mentioned earlier. Like I said, you're probably going to get some written content. You may even get some video content uh, from myself and the rest of us from John and Aaron uh, as well. So I'll let John give his intro and won't uh, spoil it for you. But let's get going with episode one of season two and my guest, John Townsend. John Townsend, thank you for uh, taking time to be on uh, the latest episode of the, the On the Touchline podcast. And uh, you are actually episode one of season two. So uh, you get the, uh, you know, you're, you're first out of the gate. Um, we're uh, wrapping up season one, which will uh, air um, tomorrow. But uh, season two will air here. Uh, going to sort of uh, structure things slightly differently. Don't want to give it all away yet, but uh that will be coming out soon, and uh, yeah, you're first out of gate, out of the gate. So, um, tell folks listening to this that uh, you know may have heard your name um, in a number of circle uh, soccer circles, but uh, tell folks a little bit about where you grew up and uh, maybe a little bit about your backstory, and and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's really good to talk to you. Uh, I'm a fan of of the podcast, and I, I listen to it. Uh, I actually. Listen to the Chris Kessel episode a couple times because he's a buddy of mine. But um, I love what you're doing. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me. My story is unique in that it is both the prototypical American soccer player journey growing up uh, in the Bay Area of California um, in a primarily Latino uh, environment, but also very multicultural. So I had some Korean friends, some uh, Vietnamese friends, some African-American friends, and obviously Mexican friends. And um, soccer was the primary sport uh, where I grew up in South San Jose. And my father was a huge fan of soccer but never played it. Um, he was a really elite um, triathlete, and he was um, an elite swimmer. So he had like this, this athletic background, and he just applied what he thought he knew to soccer, youth soccer, that was the sport. Um, so I grew up playing in uh, the Bay Area, and it was kind of nice in, in hindsight, you know, having all that sunshine year-round and never playing indoor. And then um, about right before high school, I moved to Chicago, uh, and I learned what the indoor game was about because you were inside for about five months a year. Um, and I, I encountered a very diverse um difference of, of soccer experience and educations in the background I grew up in my form, formative years and then entering that high school year, which is a weird year uh, set of years for uh, an American player back then at least um, because I, I was moving. That's just socially awkward. And then trying to fit in as a soccer player and find a team. I didn't know anything about it. The world was less connected back then. And around that time, um, I went and was invited uh, to play in Dallas Cup, the big U tournament. Um, and I was seen by um, a, a team out of Dallas who um, was putting together, uh, I won't say all-star team, but a select number of people uh, um, to go play in a tournament in Europe, like one of those soccer tours. And so we ended up doing that. I was with a bunch of kids from Dallas and uh, San Antonio and Houston. I was the only kid from the Midwest up in Chicago. And I was, uh, we found ourselves playing in, in Holland and in, in, in the Netherlands. Um, I actually, uh, after our tour was over, I stayed for a bit to um, live with the host family. Um, I was able to kind of work out an arrangement with my parents. 
which was terrifying back then because we didn't have cell phones, we had calling cards and <laughs> care packages. It was, again, a less connected world, but um, I spent a good deal of my uh, formative years playing in Europe, and then I came back to the States to finish high school, and that was a uh, culture shock for me in the inverse way. So I was used to, I had this really good upbringing in California, and then I had a really good introduction to high-level soccer in Chicagoland, and then in Europe. And then all of a sudden, I was thrown into the the mixer of what high school soccer was back then. And it was actually a really competitive thing. There was an academy. There was uh, the Emerging Top Talent Program, which is now the Development Academy. And this is around 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, I ended up playing collegiately uh, for two schools, University of Illinois, Chicago, and then I transferred to the University of Kentucky. Um, my collegiate career was less than stellar. Um, transferring didn't help, but I was kind of stuck in two different um, situations. One, I learned a very technical game and a very uh, you know forward-thinking, European-heavy type of uh, a game, and, and the college game is still pretty run and gun. And being 6'2", about 190 pounds, I was... I fit the mold of what it should have been a division one soccer player, but I was playing several steps ahead of teammates. I wasn't fitting into the system. And then I had a series of like three concussions in 12 months. So sitting out, not being able to be put in, um, had a really bad car accident where I actually broke my neck. Um, it was a very minor break, but that, uh, ruined my eligibility. So after college, I ended up actually revamping my soccer experience, but I went to Europe for a little bit to kind of, um, hang out with some friends who were going to play in Germany. Um, they were offered, you know, uh, contracts. They were uh, for the regional Liga, and I went and trained um, with them and just kind of saw where that was going to go. And then eventually had to um, come back to the States, go to graduate school and do the whole work thing. But I got into coaching right away. That was like after the, the playing and the hope of playing, <laughs> um, I played in competitive men's leagues in Chicago, the the Metro League and, and, and really high-level stuff. And even here in St. Louis, they have some really good men's leagues. So I've, I'm still playing the game, but it's um, it's a really unique experience because I got in the coaching right away while I was still competitively playing. And that really helped me figure out what not to do well – or not, not to do and then what I was doing well and kind of taking from my coaching um, repertoire of, of, of guys that helped me along the way. So I guess my story is unique in that I, um, I have the – you know, played all the select and, and, and travel soccer, played the high school game, played the collegiate game played the men's league journeyman thing and then went over in Europe and tried to, you know, find my place there. Um, so it's a hybrid experience if, if that answers your question. Mm -hmm. What was, uh, so take me back to Europe and uh, I guess similarities or differences uh, compared to, you know, growing up in the Bay, uh, Bay area or, uh, you know, in Chicago. Um, I can imagine that there were probably, know quite a few differences uh but what was that like for you so i think the similarities were you know growing up in the bay area the game is pretty much part of the culture so um in the netherlands it was very much what you did when you were not in school or you're not sitting at a dinner table or or what have you um i think the the biggest difference that um i can cite was when I came back to visit or when I came back for good, um, there were no pickup games. So in the Bay Area, there was always a pickup game. There's always an opportunity to play. Even if it was at the park and someone else had a, uh, a soccer ball and a couple of friends, it was kind of accepted to just go up to them and, and ask them, you know, do you want to play two-on-two, three-on-three? 
Um, so that was really cool to actually have that built into my soccer education or DNA going over. Um, the other similarity that I was kind of surprised at the time was um, at the younger ages, the boys and girls play together. Uh, it's not necessarily built on physicality or, or gender roles. It, it just, you know, they're, they're, they play together until a certain age, probably 13. Um, and then they split. And um, I found that the, the immersion of training into competition was, um, you know, th there was a stark difference between we're doing technical training and it's all segmented to now we're playing and it's going to be competitive. And you'd be amazed at how many of the, the players went can switch on almost like a machine from a, a tasker to I'm going to, you know, use my physicality. And I, I don't mean like in the American way, it's just their body control, their, their, their balance was so different. And I think if anyone watch, uh, has watched IAX the last couple of years, you see this, this youth movement where they're not even about being better athletes. They just have more body control and more cerebral movement um, and, and space economy on the field. And I think that's kind of a, a good takeaway because in, uh, in California, we played a very fast, technical, uh, pass-heavy game. And in Holland, it was very similar. How would you say that uh, those experiences maybe uh, shaped you as a coach? Or uh, has, you know, has that contributed to sort of your, I guess you could say, philosophy or you know, the style of play that you would like uh, you know, for your teams to have? Yeah, I think it, it really, from, from a very early age, I learned... Uh, to really respect the Dutch mentality and, and the way that they uh, valued attention to detail, um, the minutia, if you will, and, and communicating their points. And so when I became a coach, you had this platform, especially as a young player who could still put the boots on and actually you know, compete with the, you know, the, the guys you were training. Um, you had to kind of fight that urge like, to, to, to model the, whatever you wanted but have a clear, concise, and detailed uh, picture of what you want to do. So that, that meant I had to be organized, notebooks. I had to you know, draw from a host of experiences, but also tailor that down to the level where I could deconstruct the game for younger players. Um, I find that the simplicity is the key uh, in, 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 at every level. Um, so sometimes we, again, in this digital age, we can, we can see this fluid movement and we don't see for it for the micro processes. So I think getting that experience in Europe um, really helped me emerge as a young coach who was uh, willing to uh, value the attention to detail. One phrase that uh, was told was that the smallest things make the biggest differences. And that was just kind of one of the takeaways that I, that I had. The other thing was valuing the idea of uh, game realistic repetition. So if it's a sequence and not playing out of the back is the, is the big thing. Um, but if it was, you know, learning to receive across your body and shift the ball to another teammate, learning how to do that um, for maybe 20 minutes, the same, the same sequence over and over and over again. And then the coach would say, okay, now, now we're playing. And before you knew it, that was an automatic thing. It was, you know, built into your muscle memory. Um, and so it was, it was not just core moves. It was, uh, sequences that I felt were very game realistic, but deconstructed. So anybody could, um, could extract that and, and then, then apply it to the game. So, uh, when I became a coach, I was very much overwhelmed with how do I create total footballers, total players? How do I do that? And because here, I mean, we, we kind of segregate by, okay, you're the big kid, you're up top. 
you're the fat kid, you're in goal, you're the, the, the energetic kid, you're in the middle. So we don't really teach players how to play multiple positions um, and play the positions correctly, not just you can roam. It's actually this is your role as a, you know, number six or this is your role as a number nine or an 11. So I felt like when I came back from Europe and then played collegiately, I had good coaches. Um, I had a tactical awareness that I think um, would have been harder to develop if I hadn't been exposed to the game abroad. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say the, uh, the the piece on simplicity is uh, it's very Johan Cruyff. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that was his uh, one of his big sort of mottos or uh, mantras that he uh, that he had. And obviously, being in Holland, uh, I'm sure you probably caught a little bit of that while you're there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll say this: uh, I, I wrote a piece once about the, uh, and, and if you read this the book uh, Brilliant Orange, uh, it's one of the best uh, books out there. There's, there's a really good parallel between the way the Dutch view um, even their landscape with the, the levees and in the space economy. And there's a, you know, there's not a lot of space to play. So small sided games are huge. And there's uh, Cruyff course or, or soccer cages or street or, you know, street soccer. And um, even their architecture is very angular, very, um, you know, very intentional how they want to set up a diagram. And, and what was funny when I, first went to a training session as a player there. I, I'd never seen as many cones and, and, and perfectly placed in space cones. They weren't just thrown out. They were measured. They had a coach that would, his, his role was to pick up and put down cones. And here in the States, they'd be kind of seen as like a chore. There it was, you know, he's proud to do that, proud to be precise. And then as we did passing squares or diamond drills, it was, you could tell immediately because the grids were out. Um, who took a bad touch because it was not in alignment with, um, you know, what they had designed. And what's interesting is that like you look at MC Escher and some of these architects from, uh, and even uh, painters from, from Holland. And there's the attention to detail that, that playfulness with angles, that creativity, but also within a a bigger construct, if that makes any sense. So um, I found that to be a really interesting thing. It's more advanced to, you know, you think about that in an abstract way, but when I became a coach, I said, wow, um, I'm not going to do it to that level. However, I could communicate these points simplistically for these players and use these tools to help paint the picture. I don't have to yell or scream or, or direct as much. I can just use these markers. And so um, I found that to be a really interesting um, takeaway. And I didn't re- realize it until about my third or fourth year coaching. You kind of kind of learn the kinks and, and, and work those out of your system. But um yeah, there, there's a value there. I think that I that I think here we we are are very quick to to judge, um, you know, so many cones and this that and the other. And I don't use a ton of cones now, but I think it was just really good for me to have that visual. I'm a visual learner, and just have that um, that layout going into a coaching role. So, uh, at, at some point uh, along the journey. Um, you decided that, uh, you know, being a coach was, uh, you know, in the cards and, uh, I've told this story before, but, um, you know, thank God that my son started playing soccer. And I say that because that is what inspired me to become a coach and always loved soccer, uh, had a long, long gap, um, from playing days to sort of getting back at, you know, uh, with the game, but the, so he starts playing and, I told my wife that, you know, gosh, I feel like I could probably 
provide some value to this. Not that the, his first coach that he had was fantastic. Doesn't know a whole lot about soccer, but in terms of just keeping the kids fired up and excited and, you know, uh, sort of that retention piece of coming back and wanting to keep going. thought he did a really great job with that. Gets into sort of a, a second phase and I'm like, well, okay, maybe I can jump in and, you know, maybe add some value here. And so I'm curious for you, sort of what inspired you to want to be a coach? So this is a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. So what inspired me the most was I saw a level of dedication that the good coaches that I had put into a thankless role. So um, whether it was mentoring us, whether it was leading by example, whether it was getting into us when we didn't have that leadership, maybe, you know, you're, you're an adolescent, you're doing the wrong things. They're coaching the person as well as the player. I like that aspect. I think I have that naturally in me. I love teaching. Um, I love sharing knowledge. The other side of this dichotomy or duality is I had a number of really bad coaches that were um, doing things not out of malice. They just didn't know any better. They were maybe not brought up in the sport. They couldn't take their knowledge of American football or wrestling or baseball or basketball and transfer it into a different sport. And I saw that their, their role was more authoritarian. Their role was more um, talking at you, joysticking, um, run sprints until you puke. And I realized that if I, I split up my, or I segment my American experience, I won't talk about the European one because that was obviously very different, but good coaching and very specialized. Um, it's probably about a 60, 40 split of really good coaches, 60%. And 40% of the experience is just absolute confusion and, afraid to make mistakes and playing not to lose and more fitness than anything. And then, you know, intimidation and all these things that don't really transfer into productive person forming people forming performation and then playing. I think, you know, I, I remember just wanting to enter the, the game to give something back, but also knowing that the game took a lot from me, not in a negative way, just took my, you know, didn't go to proms. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go on a lot of, you know, senior trips with my, my friends. I was going to state cup or, you know, ODP. And so I wanted to validate that in some way by sharing what I, what I learned. And I honestly didn't think I was going to be um, a, a, a good coach at all. I was actually an assistant for a while and it was kind of like, well, my eligibility's up. I, I played a little bit in Europe. Um, I, I did the, you know, journeyman thing. I'm not done with the game yet. So what do I do? You know, and, and back then, I mean, there was no USL there. Well, there's a, an A league, but it's not nearly what it is now. Um, there isn't a lot of, there's a USA, SA, but there's not a ton of options. So if you're 23, 24, I mean, the U S has probably the one of the large percentage of, of good, competent players that hang up the boost because there are no options. We don't have a, a tiered system that's cohesive the way European countries or South American countries do. Um, so, Coaching is a natural progression, I, I feel, if you really love the game. And so I felt that I had a lot to offer and I had energy to do it. And um, that's kind of why I wanted to do it. I, I had these great coaches and I had these bad ones. And I was going to draw from experiences on uh, both sides of that duality. I love the uh, the introspection that, uh, you know, getting to that point of, you know, reflecting on the experiences you had, uh, you know, as a player and can totally relate to what you said, John, because, um, <laughs> you know, I've told people before that, uh, man, we were 
incredibly fit, uh, but <laughs> our technical ability sucked. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I had a, a youth coach and his favorite thing was, I mean, he just had us run the perimeter of the field and, yeah. uh, you know, we were probably the, the fittest team in the league, but, um, my God, I mean, we had no clue in terms of anything related to the game, technical, tactical, I mean, but we were in fantastic shape and right. what did that get us? Not much, you know? Um, so uh, kind of a, you know, slight pivot and we'll come back to the, uh, the U S soccer landscape. Cause I definitely want to dive into that. Um, and some of the, the things that you've written about, um, but what do you like as a coach? So if I, you know, would show up at a training session or, you know, watch you on match day, um, how would you describe your demeanor, uh, to the listeners? So I guess that might depend on the age that I'm, I'm actually trying to reach. So the littles, um, I'm, I'm very, try to be energetic. Um, I realize that that can be the inmates from the asylum at some points. Um, but with my, my, my adolescents, so my, my U14 and U18 players, um, training sessions are, are, are generally relatively structured in, in, in that they know that they're going to um, have a nice split between some technical work, some concentration work, individual work. Um, I do a ton, a ton of stuff with the ball. And even we have a 10 minute rule where they don't get in the line and jog. They are doing um, basically seven different turns, feints, cuts, chops that just them at the ball that are very game realistic. So they're all fake passes, um, Cruyff turns, you know, inside, outside chops, V turns, L turn, all these things. And they're doing that at game speed, and that's just kind of their warm-up. That's 10 minutes. They have that time to kind of mentally prep while I set up or debrief or prepare. And then we go right into, um, you know, introduction. How, how's everyone doing? Everyone's here. Here's, here's the game plan or the, the training plan. And then we go uh, into some one-on-one outplaying to, to gates. So it's basically uh, they line up and they, they basically outplay each other and they get to gate and they switch roles. From, so what I try to build over the course of a season in training is thousands of one-on-one situations, both offensively and defensively. So when it comes to game time, one of my big fears as a player in this negative culture was I was afraid of losing the ball. It was very punitive. It was very, you know, you lost the ball, you let the team down. Very That, that was like the, the core ethos. And so my players get thousands of repetitions. And I, I don't mean hundreds. I mean thousands of repetitions a season um, in one-on-one and sometimes 2v2 situations where they're out playing, they're learning how to defend, um, and they're using very simple moves. So not, these aren't like super complicated Nike freestyles. They're game realistic. If you watched, um, you know, Frankie de Jong uh, use mm-hmm. his body to, to, to lose two players today, it's that kind of stuff. And then we, we, we build off into some small-sided games. We do, um, if I find that players need some technical refinement, then we, we, we'll stop there. We'll just do that. And, and this is what I, I, I preface with. We might do a pattern of play for an extended period of time if they're not showing me that they can do that in a, in a, in a post setting. We might do it on a post for a while. But then we'll eventually break out into some um, some live you know, transition play. Or, and, and I try to structure myself as I will model a movement. I will have an expectation. But I, I, I like to be silent and observe and, and kind of at a natural break, I'll interject. Um, I'll pull a player aside and not disrupt the flow. Um, during games, uh, I'm pretty quiet, actually. Um, I've learned that if you're yelling during a game, You've exposed that you've done very little during the week to prep for that situation, and you are still unable to let go and let the players play their game. Now, I know 
people are like, well, you, I heard you, I hear you talk. I'll do micro adjustments. I will try to give uh, consumable tidbits of information. But if, if my players lose because they can't figure out their role, and this is the older older group, obviously, um, that's kind of the teachable moment. Like the results matter less to me. Um, their development as players and their role is really important. You littles, um, I don't need to say anything. The parents say everything. So, um, <laughs> but but to be honest, um, I, I try to keep a very scholarly is the wrong word a very professor-like approach to it because I realized um, in my early years of coaching, um, I tried to use a shock factor and not scream, but be very animated. And that lost its luster within two weeks. And I lost my voice within two and a half weeks. So it wasn't effective. Um, there were situations where I said too little and the game got away from the players and me and then I had to kind of do a, a retrospect of how I could have been uh, more involved and, and when I say I'm silent I'm not like sitting off on the sidelines like my arms crossed um, but I'm writing things down I'm using my assistants to kind of um, take some notes for me I'll say maybe you watch the back line you watch the midfield and I'll watch you know and what I try to do is during halftime my, my my spiel is pretty simple it's what do you see to the players and I learn more from them than they're gonna learn from me on the fly now obviously there are some coaching points that I can articulate um, there are times when I, I have to intentionally throw uh, a stick in the spokes and I'll get into it real, like, you know, very energetically, or I'll take a different approach just to kind of keep them on their toes. Like, Oh, he's not going to be quiet today. He's not observing. He's actually actively in this. Um, my older guys know that as soon as I put the training bib on or lace up the boots, um, it's going to be a different type of training session just because I'm going to model the speed and the intensity and they're, they're faster and, and should be more polished than I am. But I will try to say if I can do this at my age, you have to be able to, to, to meet this level. And so it's it's a it's interesting mix. I try to stay um, you know free. I don't I don't try to be rigid with my approach because that can change. I, I've changed as a coach and as a being a, a young parent <laughs> that has changed my patient my patient level. Um, I guess the biggest thing I, I would say though is I, I just pick my battles. I I have a, a firm rule with um, you know, players that, uh, you know, basically you come here to, to respect the, the idea that we're training. This is kind of, um, our time, not my time, but this is our time as a, as a group and we're here to get better. And if I feel like we can do that as a unit, we're going to be uh, successful in this approach. And, you know, I, I, I try not to lecture too much, but, um, I don't do, I don't do post game talks. <laughs> I wait till the next training session or maybe, extract some players, but uh, I let the captains and I let the leaders um, and even people who aren't necessarily the vocal leaders, I let them lead too. So I'm a very much, I delegate to, um, to the people playing the game. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a fantastic segue into, uh, you know, a follow-up question about culture as it relates to, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the older teams that you coach and uh, how do you go about, uh, you know, to the degree that you can, uh, is the head coach or the manager of shaping that culture and sort of, you know, what elements, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of leaning on some players. I love that. Um, but tell me a little more about that in terms of building that dynamic or that environment that, uh, you know, players are excited to come to training. They want to be a part of this. You know, they realize that this is really bigger than them. Yeah. So one thing that I, I try to really get out in the open initially is, you know, any day you can get out and kick a soccer ball with your buddies, 
um, in a safe environment. It's a good day. Uh, I didn't always have that as a kid growing up in South San Jose. I mean, my parents weren't poor, but we certainly weren't rich. And so, you know, um, back in my day, but I mean, it was like, you could get your ball stolen, you could get it stabbed, or you could get your shoes taken from you, you could get beat up. Um, you know, kids don't have that as much anymore um, that I coach. But what I try to, I try to instill in them is, you know, we're here to get better. Now, it, it may not work for you. I mean, this may not be for you. And there's a door. I'm perfectly open with that as well. I mean, I, I try to be upfront and honest. And there are some players who just don't have, you know, I, I've said this before, this is one thing that is a really hard coaching um, point to make to a player is, the line, this is just not important enough to you. Um, I've, I've had that conversation. And sometimes it, it takes a bit of tough love to, 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 to reach the other side of a person's psyche. Um, but I don't play mind games with them. I don't, you know, do the any given Sunday speech. But, but what I think is interesting is when they come to my training sessions, they understand they're going to be doing dynamic work. So every player is going to defend. Every player is going to attack. And that, that 1v1 drill is a good microcosm because it's you're going to do the things you don't want to do. Not every player wants to have to defend shadow and shadow play and, and get beat. Not every player wants to twist and turn and express themselves creatively. Not every player wants to do that. They're going to do it because that's part of the game. And when game time comes and you execute that and you open up a, a passing lane or you create space for yourself or you outplay two opponents and he did it automatically, like that's why we do this. I also try to paint a picture of do you know what the game at the, the very next level, not the pro level, but like whatever the next level is for them, what does that look like? They all know because they have smartphones and computers. Do you know what that plays like, though? Do you know what that feels like? Do you know what that? And that's kind of where they're like, "No, I don't." That's the goal today. We're going to get to that level, that next little you know, upper echelon, and we're going to move that needle just one point today. I think sometimes we we get very ahead of ourselves. We're going to be doing this by X date. I just try to push the the threshold and challenge them to do that. So when I lean on players. I'm forcing them to um, challenge their own comfort zones, make sure that their strengths keep them in the team, their weaknesses don't get them out of the team. And that's tough because, you know, there's a performance coach named Roger Spry who says for every um, three months of bad habits, it takes about one month of work to, to undo. So when I get players coming from summer or from their high school seasons, I realize there's a, a whole bunch of undoing or reforming of, of habit to get them to buy into what we're going to do. So sometimes they're used to booting it down the field. Well, we're not doing that. We're going to try to keep the ball. And, um, you know, I, I try to just create a culture where they're okay making the mistake. I just use the term, put out your fire. Like if you lose the ball, it's okay. That's why your teammates are there to, you know, to, to help. And, um, but the American coach is, is, has one of the hardest jobs, which is we get players from all different sporting environments and social environments. And, we want them to play a very um, competitive game, but we don't really know what they're bringing to the table. So, I mean, they could be very um, creative in basketball, but they're shy in soccer. It's like, okay, well, how do we get that switch turned on? Or how do we, uh, you know, make this mix work with a group of players? And that, that's difficult. I think it's borderline alchemy, but <laughs> I think the, the the reality is you play to philosophy. So my philosophy is pretty simple. It's we're all going to, uh, be specialists in what we do. So if it's, you know, you're a center back, doesn't mean you can't carry it forward. It doesn't mean you can't, um, you know, play make. 
you're defending first, but that's kind of like, I want them to have the freedom to interchange. And I'm very I'm much a fan of, uh, you know, total football. Like I want you to be able to, to, to interchange on the fly and share responsibility, share the ball. Um, so to do that, you need to really understand the people. And that's tough as a coach. You don't have enough man hours to, to learn who they are. And sometimes you don't want to, you want them to just <laughs> come and play and enjoy that. So um, that's why I lean the players. They know each other better than I will ever know them. No, I man, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, and that's a it's a very player centric uh, approach, and uh, you know, I, refreshing to hear that because uh, you know I, I might lean a little more to a, a coach centered approach, and um, <clears throat> not to say one's right or wrong uh, by any stretch, um, but that that's interesting to me to to hear that and really relying. I would think that that would build probably quite a bit of trust with the players and whether that be the captains or, you know, a leadership council or, you know, however you break it up, um, that they probably feel that they really have, you know, if you want to say the word ownership or they have a, you know, serious investment in this process. That's, yeah, that's the word. That's the word I would use as investment. So yeah. ownership too. So what I try to, I try to say is this is your game. So whether, we win or lose. Um, we, we do that as a team and I'm part of that. However, um, I think that when peers can lean on each other, there's some self monitoring going on where they, whether it's leading by example or they check themselves like, wow, I am off today. Um, that's a maturity thing. And I think with the older group, um, that's part of growing up. And I think if we want players that make soccer a lifestyle we have to start bringing lifestyle things into our soccer so whether it's you know ownership responsibility um you know I, with the with the you littles i make them walk through little gates and we'll come through the gate on this side now we're more serious now we're listening to the coach now we're you know but with the older players um you know i want them to be relaxed when they come there but i don't want them to be so relaxed where they're not getting anything out of it and i also try to build in this idea that you cannot eat the elephant in one bite we have to do this in iterations and I use this analogy about getting better uh, with brushing your teeth. I think this is a really popular one with psychologists. If you brush your teeth for five hours and you don't do it the rest of the week, your teeth are still rot out. If you do it two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the afternoon, two minutes at night, so six minutes a day, and that's all you ever do, you're going to have healthy teeth. And I say that with development. It's like we're going to get better incrementally. So training session by training session, we're going to move this needle. We're not going to come up one day and play like Man City or Liverpool or whatever. We're not, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this in iterations and it's going to be micro processes. And when you break the game down for older players or any player, really, you make it more manageable. Like they, they don't feel like they're swallowing this giant philosophy. It's like today's emphasis is this and behind the scenes, they don't know that I'm connecting at all. Like they, they have no idea. They're just playing a game and they're expressing themselves. I think where it comes down to learning how to rein in control though, because I've, I've lost, you know, the message sometimes we're like they're having too much fun or they're not getting after it or they're not their compete level super low because they're so relaxed that's on me like that I've, I've clearly set an incorrect precedent and now i have to course correct and sometimes it's a good teachable moment for me i'm still learning i'm a i like using the phrase we're lifelong learners but um i i think that my role as their coach is to guide them i can't do it for them and it's their game i mean i really I had coaches that told me what to do on the fly 90 minutes. And I'm like, I'm not even listening to you, dude. I'm just nodding. Like I'm not, I don't hear you or all I do is hear I'm not listening. So I, I, 
I don't want to be that guy. And I, I think that our players get enough of that anyway. So when they come, you know, for my teams, I guess, in my training sessions, I try to, you know, relinquish some of that. Well, I, I love the self-awareness, John. And I just, uh, I, I can tell you've thought a lot about this. And, um, you know, I think your your experiences, uh, you know, California, Chicago, Texas, uh, Holland, I mean, it's very clear to me that all these things have shaped you, uh, you know, into who you are and, and, and your, uh, you know, additional playing experiences uh, as well. And I think that's really neat um, because I think there's a number of coaches and you and I have probably worked with some of them that haven't had that sort of self-reflective nature. And so I wonder, you know, I have some of this stuff when we were trading DMs, uh, you know, I was going through and I'm like, holy shit, like what, what haven't you done? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you, you've played abroad, you played all over the States, um, you're coaching now, uh, you know, you're a writer, um, you do the marathon thing, you do the ultra marathon <laughs> thing, you got a family. I'm like, do you sleep? And uh, so I guess my question is, uh, you know, how do you take care of yourself away from the game? Because, you know, I've experienced this at different times where, uh, you know, you hit a bit of a rough patch, right? Where you're going, God, it, it's not clicking. Or, you know, you have, in, in some cases, maybe a group of parents that are sort of, you know, pushing back maybe to the method or, you know, the philosophy or how things are being accomplished or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I, I've had those moments of self-doubt where I'm going like, you know, should I, should I coach something else? Right. Should I go, go, go coach basketball or, you know, whatever. And I always come, it, it usually settles down after a few days and usually sleeping on it or talking to some mentors or, you know, folks in the game or whatever that kind of build me back up or my wife gives me a, a good dose of reality. But how do you take care of yourself as a, as a coach? So the big thing is, you know, I try to do a couple things. One of them is I take breaks. So there's some seasons I don't coach at all because I just cannot have the bandwidth. Um, and a lot of it too is I, I use a phrase, you know, take advantage of time or time will take advantage of you. And we were speaking before uh, we went on the podcast that, you know, time is kind of a commodity. We don't get that back. Right. So, um, I have, I have been very clear with my expectations as, as a coach first for myself is I will never do something to the point where I don't want to go do it. Like I had enough experience as a player. I'm like, oh, fuck, we have to train today. Like I was like so scared to go to training because I'm like, we're going to run. We're going to do uh, basically Oklahoma drill with soccer and mm -hmm. we're going to run more. And then we're going to, you know, do butts up because the losers are losers. And then our coach is going to call us, you know, a bunch of a bunch of names and then we're not going to learn anything the other thing that i think that i do take care of myself is i'm always learning something else so like i will use my commute as a curriculum on the road i'll listen to a podcast i will um I, I will replay an audiobook or a chapter i will um write not while i'm commuting but like i will i will think of things that i'm going to engage my mind in and separate from the game the other thing I do as a coach to maintain my mental clarity is I absolutely remove emotion from uh, the practice sometimes. So refs will, will, will anger me. Parents will, will get into me. They'll call me all sorts of things that they would never, I would never go to the workplace and call them that, <laughs> but you know, but there's a lot of emotion tied to that. And I learn not to be governed by emotions. Like people say things they, they, they may not mean them. They may mean them, but I'm going to sleep fine knowing that I'm removing emotion. Like it doesn't get a vote with me. Um, now emotion is important. Don't, don't get me wrong, 
but I don't want to um, make that a factor where I, you know, think about that and I, I harbor ill will. Um, I just will cut people, you know, like if, if that's what they, how they want to talk to me, then it's not going to be received. I just set that precedent. I'm very, very honest with people. Um, I also try to be a, be a confidence man, not a con man. I think that there's a big difference between, you know, people say they can do it and then they don't, their actions differ. I tell my players, you know, uh, another thing, um, and this is important for me as a coach, you know, vision without execution is hallucination. Like if I don't visualize something, I don't execute on that. It could be some minor thing. Like I'm going to be more prepared today. I'm going to be five minutes earlier. I'm going to cut practice short. If it's, if it's bad, we're, we're done. Like I'm, I'm, I have that ability if the older kids that they can drive, but I, I try to like, you know, make sure that I have a vision and I execute upon it or I attempt to. Um, the other thing that I think is really as a coach, um, I just try to reflect a ton and I write so that this helps me. Um, I can generally create, I, I could do a two blog post a day on the things that I am thinking about, but I try to promote ideas that, um, are real and realistic and they're consumable. And so I know that I am not Pep Guardiola. I know that I will never be of that, of that ability. However, I do think that once you can look at yourself and I mean, this is going to sound really crazy, but you can look at your deficiencies or your pain and laugh at it and, and, and judge it for what it is. The rest of the things become easier. And I know that sounds kind of high in the sky, but it's like, I used to be very scared about speaking in front of players because they could see right through me or parents challenging me because they're paying to be on the team. Their kid is not applying what I'm trying to uh, accomplish and they're putting pressure at the DOC or, you know, whatever. Um, sometimes you just have to, to, to accept that you're not going to please everybody. So um, mental side, I do that. Physical side, um, it sounds crazy, but I, I get like 20 to 40 minutes of working out in five days a week. Um, I have really cleaned up like just the maintenance part. I know this is what you're asking, but it's, it's kind of like a holistic machine, right? So um, I had to really, really, really recalibrate how, um, as a young parent, how I was fueling my body, <laughs> like, so cleaning up my diet, uh, hydrating. So no sodas, um, very little alcohol. Now I don't, I love beer, but I don't drink it anymore. Um, because I was getting sluggish by like, even just having a weekend with friends. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, but it, it compounds. So I try to, um, just optimize, you know, my body. And, and, and again, it, it sounds narcissistic, but it's really just, I need to be at my best so I can be at my best for others. So, um, the marathon and the, the ultra marathoning is, is important to me. It's a meditative thing. It's not, I'm not breaking records. I'm not uh, winning races, but it keeps me on a, a nice, um, healthy, uh, regiment where I know I have to train. If I don't do what I say I'm going to do, how can my players do what I'm asking them to do? So it's kind of lead by example, but I'm removing soccer from it. Like this is a thing that this was my punishment as a player running. So why would I go do marathon? So I, I use it as a, as a meditative thing. It's, it's, a, it's fun to do for me. Um, one day I won't be able to do it, but um, that's not today. And then I just try to uh, continually look at other people, um, resources like yours and, and just learn. I mean, I think we're so scared of not knowing as, as, as coaches uh, and parents too. I mean, I, am the first to admit, like I've been to coaching classes where people know me who I am on Twitter or they read my articles and they're like, you're in this class. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, I thought you would be like an A licensed coach. I'm like, dude, I don't have six grand to like, yeah, I, I'm like, I, I'm not there yet. Um, I've 
you know, failed assessments because I was too creative and not, you know, aligning with what, and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. But I, I also just think there's a bit of humility that I've learned along the way. I've been fired from coaching jobs. I've been, you know, fired from real jobs and it's like, okay, I own that. So ownership is huge. And that's kind of, you know, I allow myself to be more vulnerable than, um, you know, others. And I think the vulnerability is not a, a weakness. It's, it's, it's a strength as long as you don't let emotion govern action. So. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I feel like we're uh, separated at birth or something because uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, same by the way on, uh, on the alcohol part, I've, uh, I was going to say it's probably been four, four years maybe since, uh, since I've had a drink and uh, same thing, uh, you know, I'm 37 and uh, you know, if I'm chasing you 10 players around, I, I got to have energy. I got to have stamina. Uh, I got to make sure I'm taking care of myself and mm. um you know, I, I, I agree with you. It's a, uh, I have to model the behavior that I want for my players. So if I'm, you know, I don't know, slurping down a diet Coke or something like that, that's probably not modeling the behavior I want, <laughs> you know, well, water would probably be a better choice. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, what a holistic approach. Uh, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, how did you get into writing? Uh, I'm curious about that. No, that's a good question. Um, so let me, let me preface by saying the holistic approach, uh, it didn't come easy. I had a lot of years where I'm like, man, I am not doing this right. Um, writing though, I, I had a, I have an English degree and then I have a dual master's in secondary education and English. So, um, writing is kind of the one thing that I always enjoyed doing. Um, uh, even in school essays, I loved them. Um, I found when I was, um, emerging as a, a collegiate player, eligibility was up undergraduate school i just didn't find a lot of like great soccer writing in this country like i mean i'm not saying that we don't have it but it was hard to find 10 12 15 years ago you could find match reports you could find some pr player profiles some features but it was kind of like who's do these people play the game like do they understand are they coaches and and i don't mean this to denigrate anybody i just felt like there was no player voice there was no coaching voice and so I started writing basically if for myself. So every article I write, selfishly, it's for myself. Even if it's like Johan Croy feature and I'm educating others, I'm like, no, I want to learn. So I'm going to write it as if I were my own teacher and student. And so um, I have, a, I have a, a pretty good command of, of, of the English language, obviously. Um, you know, I'm a technical writer also by in the IT world. And so I, I get paid to write professionally, just not for soccer. Um, but I felt that, there's a whole generation of coaches, parents, and players who needed um, consumable content that was authentic. Like I don't have any ties to any league. I don't, um, you know, I write for these football times, but um, it's a it's a vocation. Um, I love doing it. I think I have a lot to offer with through that. I have my own blogs and, and all that stuff. But I found that, that um, I could process thoughts and emotions and even learn new things or help other people connect the dots um, through my writing and sharing my experiences. And some of them are just stories and some of them are, you know, philosophical things like using KPIs and player analysis to um, judge performance as opposed to using the naked eye, which is a more reliable thing. And sometimes, you know, you'd be surprised. Um, I like doing deep dives, kind of that lifelong learner thing into a topic that I'm not comfortable with and wrestling with it and working that problem. I think as, um, as a writer, there's a phrase that I use myself called uh, expose the ghost or reveal the boogeyman. Everyone's afraid to tackle this idea. It's like, well, let's write about it. 
just you know you, you don't have to publish it just get get that out of your mind into the universe onto a piece of paper or onto a page um and i think more people do that they synthesize ideas and so that's how i my mind works it's always operating on a level where i'm like hmm, if this were an article who would my audience be and would it be compelling and believe me i've written some fantastic articles that or absolute duds in the real world. So um, I've also written some really good stuff that never got published. And um, and years later, I'm like, wow, they were right not to publish that. Or when I've had publishers come back and like, hey, do you still have that article? And I'm like, I actually deleted it, man. You said it sucked. So, <laughs> you know, um, so writing is, is a passion of mine. Um, and I knew I was never going to write the next American novel. So <laughs> I figured I might as well use my powers for what I do know, which is, you know, uh, stuff about soccer and, and I love even doing historical features. So like a match in 1953, let's talk about that. Cause then I have to do some research and I have to learn and I can separate from the tactics and the technical stuff. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I didn't find, find a huge long winded answer. I didn't find a huge, um, resource of great writing. And now there's blogs everywhere. There's awesome resources. So now I'm very happy to be lost in that noise because um, there's always something to challenge and keep us accountable and, and even expand our knowledge. So that's been really good for me. The uh, so you've written about the uh, landscape of soccer in our country. And uh, you know, a question that I ask uh, guests when they come on the show is, you know, what are we doing right? And what are we doing wrong uh, in this country? And uh, if you want to riff on that a little bit, and that could be you know, related to things that you've written or just, you know, sort of your own experience or, or anything along those lines? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a big one. Um, so there's two articles that I would invite people to go look at on these football times. One is the the Fermi paradox of American soccer. And then the other one is the uh, Superman savior syndrome. Uh, what we do well is we have an abundance of resources and infrastructure and people who want to play the game and people are willing to learn. I think uh, I've been told in, in coaching courses abroad and, and, and going abroad and just learning and, and observing that American coaches are really willing to learn and willing to do, try, and fail like more than people think. Um, I think we have the potential to really, really grow the sport here from top down, bottom up. Where we kind of fall short is we – I'll talk about the, uh, the, the Superman or Savior syndrome is we always pick a young player. Kristen Pulisic would be it. Freddie Adu in my, in my day. Mm-hmm. Um we hinge the, the the hopes and dreams of the game and the trajectory of the game uh, on a player and their success. And we might do that to the point where we look at a performance and we get lost in performance and like, oh, they didn't score. American soccer is doomed. They didn't play well in the Champions League or they didn't even make a Champions League squad or they're, they're in USL now. What were we thinking? Um, I think that American soccer is doing a poor job of – looking at the game and, and, and giving it a, an honest, uh, I, I guess we live in a crockpot society. We should know we live in a microwave society. We should, we should live in a crockpot society. We don't let things settle. Like we just put it in and we're like, okay, produce. And I think we have done a horrible job as a country in fostering a, an environment to um, keep our, our young promising talents uh basically where they need to be in terms of competing. And that that might not be MLS. That might be abroad. That might be pushing them out of the nest. (laughs) And, and and I think we also, we're just too, we're too exclusive and elitist in this country from, uh, from all levels. I mean, the cost of play, 
cost to be a good coach or I mean to be a coach and be regarded as a good coach is, is just exorbitant. And I think the where we need to reform systemic reform is we need to really open the access up. And I, and I mean this from just like, we need scouts in inner cities. We need scouts in rural areas. And we don't just need people with the title scout. We need to understand what the industry of scouting means. We need um, free coaching resources. I think every coaching license until your B should be free or very minimal cost. Um, I think we need to uh, absolutely have the federation and city planners build soccer cages and Cruyff courts and just leave soccer balls places. And um, I think that, you know, you look at what other countries do, we do a bad job of this. Well, Holland did this, we could do that too. Um, it's, it's just, it's just too different. But I think to, to that point, we need to um, also not hinge the hopes and dreams of American soccer as a whole on one league or one national team. I think uh, there's another article that I wrote about the deconstruction of American soccer. I wrote it when we didn't qualify. Um, I think we flew too close to the sun. Like we thought we were so we're shooing, you know, we fired Jurgen Klinsman. We hired Bruce Reno. All we had to do was tie against an already eliminated Trinidad Tobago. And, you know, the player approach before the game was just like the most arrogant thing. And then we got burned. I just think we don't learn from history. Um, if, if I'm looking at it cynically, we just do not learn from, you know, whether it's hinging our hopes and dreams on a young player, um, repeating the same ills as when you and I played with players today, or, um, you know, not getting our players in the right environments to succeed. I also would say that um, positively there are people like yourself and, and, and our scores of friends that are, are, are beating the drum to uh, have some type of reform or, or, or just like, you know, move the needle a little bit for their community. I think Chris Kessel was a, a guest of yours. And he, I mean, he's a great example. I mean, people may love him or loathe him, but he's doing the work in his community. And he, he walks the walk and talks the talk. I think a lot of people get stuck in Reddit or social media and they don't actually do all the things that they could be doing. And I think I would challenge everyone listening to this. If you're stuck in a situation where you don't know where to start, start a blog, start a podcast, start a, you know, uh, you know, ask to be a guest on some of these things or, or be a voice of, of reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of emotions, a lot of anger. I've been there before. Um, we all want the game to be better, but, you know, we, we are a very uh, unique country. I think we have a challenge ahead of us where the rest of the country, the rest of the world, the rest of the region is, is, is advancing very fast. So we need to be very careful that we um, don't fall too far behind. So I don't know. I, I think if, we, if people read those articles, um, I've synthesized my points there. I, I'm probably due for another one to shake the the, the system up a bit. Um, those articles are supposed to be uh, thought provoking. Um, I've gotten a lot of flack for them. And I've gotten a lot of praise for them. And it's kind of funny, like people in really high places and really official places will send me a, uh, an email from a private email <laughs> account and say, Hey, I can't say this publicly, but that was on the money. Um, I also got some are like, you know, the fuck are you thinking who you think you are? And it's like, well, you know, uh, this is why I'm independent. So, um, but yeah, I think we, we have, uh, the game can be as great as we want it to be in this country. I am, I am a firm believer that the minute we decide to be a soccer powerhouse, we will be one. We just need to do the, the micro process as well. And I think we'll get there, but it's going to take a, a cohesive effort. If that makes sense. I think, uh, I think Chris told me that, um, He'll gladly carry you on his back. Uh, if one, next time we play Trinidad and Tobago, a la Michael Bradley. <laughs> I can. Uh, I was watching uh, MLS over the weekend, and I 
every time I see him, I just, that's what I think of is him riding on someone's back over a pond of water because the field was in shitty shape. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, that speaks exactly to what you said, John, about the, I mean, uh, elitist in terms of, you know, uh, what you said about flying too close to the sun. A absolutely. I mean, the, those guys thought that, you know, they had it in the bag and just show up and things will take care of themselves. But I really like what you said about sort of the, um, you know, the, the structure and sort of the, the youth landscape. I mean, it, it all makes, you know, so much sense to me. And, um, you know, the, the thought about the individual star is, is really interesting to me. And I was thinking when you were saying that, that, so I look at all the other, um, you know, major sports in our country and what do they do? They market individual stars, right? Look at the NBA. I mean, you know, we grew up with Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, uh, you know, those guys, um, you know, even to today, LeBron, right. Um, you know, uh, major league baseball, uh, Bryce Harper and Mike Trout and, you know, insert name of, of famous player, Clayton Kershaw, um, you know, uh, football, Tom Brady, uh, and, and you know, uh, so it's a very American thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say that, you know, we, we find the one and man, do I remember the Freddie, Freddie of two years? Mm. <laughs> Whoa, man, never forget. But, uh, yeah, I, I, that, that, that's an interesting, it's a really interesting thought. In, um, well, it's, it's a, it, what it is, it's a, it's a very interesting thought because the default mode is to look at those other sports uh, figures and, and be able to do that because those are grown men. Like even LeBron coming out of high school, I would consider him like a grown man because he was such a phenomenal, mm -hmm. um, sure player. Um, but, you know, you think about how we make franchise players. I think in, 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 the, in the world of world football or even American soccer, you know, what have we done to merit anybody of the potential or even same solar system as some of the greats? And again, it's like we have way too many what might have been. Um, we have way too many people who were cannon fodder because we decided that they were more of a marketing function than kids or players. And I, I, believe me, I didn't. It's on them to sign the contract and believe the hype for themselves. Uh, I'm not making anyone a victim here. However, I do think that it's a very novice thing to do because it's easy. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of a, the bleeds it leads type journalism where it's like sensationalizing. It. It's like, Oh, this new player, he's 16 he's playing for the galaxy. Now it's, he's the next thing. Uh, this, you know, and I think we really get caught up in that moment. It's like, well, we lose this 18 to 22 year old range in college like that. Hey, hey what about them? And I think what we need to do as a country is we just need a more educated fan base. Um, it can't all be American outlaws, swigging beer and wearing bandanas and, 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 you know, saying, I believe we will win. It's like, well, okay. At a certain point, the, the jingoistic stuff has to, you know, recede and, and it has to be actual soccer knowledge coming in real critique, real analysis. Um, you know, having former players come in and talk at you. It's like that, that's not going to work anymore. We, we have a, a very educated subset but we need the the tertiary and periphery to be more aware. And I think American soccer fans deserve better. Uh, they really do. And that, that means from the Federation to the league. Um, and I'm not here to knock MLS or the Federation, but I do think that the American soccer public from the, the kid who's still eating orange slices and Capri Suns to the, you know, the, the volunteer dad who uh, is struggling to be a part of his kid's life because soccer is the, the vehicle. Um, 
they have no idea the Federation cares about them or doesn't care about them. And I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when we have to listen to guys that were part of the 1994 USA World Cup and, and, and they think that they're the end-all, be-all authorities. Like, well, no, you are an authority, um, but we need, we need better voices. We need more uh, variants. We need opposing viewpoints. I mean, I would love to have the show called Monday Night Football on Sky. We need that here. Um, you know, and, and we need educated analysis. I think we just have a, we just have a grow a, a need and a hunger for it. And I think we've, uh, we've soccer has been like that sport that we chained to the radiator and now we want it to be like, now we want it to be like this amazing thing. It's like, you know, I look at project 20, 2010, it's like, you know, people who aren't aware of that, Google it. Um, uh, we were supposed to win world cup by then. It's like, okay, we didn't follow any of that. And it's like, Again, uh, vision without execution is hallucination. It's like we can say all the shit we want. We have to actually empower the people to do it. It's like if you want to have better national team players, you better have really good grassroots players. That's the key. I mean, every country should understand that. It's like you want great academy players, make your U6s informed and, and, and empower that grassroots volunteer coach. Like that's, that's how I see it. I mean, I think – we make our players travel way too far. Our parents pay too much money. Our coaches are underpaid in some regards. Um, you know, and I just think we, we're better than that. I think uh, we also need to not look at other countries and see how they do it and say, well, we can do it that way as well. It's like, yeah, parts of that, but we are able to write our own story and we just need to do it. I think it's getting there. I mean, there is progress. I, I, I'm optimistic, um, but I think that at the end of the day, the game is the people's game and, I think we forget that in this country. Yeah. Very well said, John. Very well said. Um, if, uh, if folks want to connect with you and follow along in the work you're doing and uh, whether it be coaching or some of the writing that you do, uh, how can they connect with you? So Twitter is probably the, the, the most active uh, platform that I'm on. My, my handle is John underscore Townsend three. So J O N underscore T O W N S E N D three. Um, I have a blog that I don't, keep up as much as I want to called farpostfooty.com. Uh, always some good stuff in the archive there. Um, on the coaching front, I have my own little coaching company now. I'm actually out of the, the club game for this year because of the birth of our son in September. Um, but it's total football uh, concepts. It's, you know, people know it's TVC. It's individual training. I have some stuff online that I've made available for people. Um, and, you know, overall, I, I'm always – on podcasts and, and looking to engage people. So um, if you Google my name, I don't know what you'll find, but it should be soccer related, hopefully. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to uh, all sorts of communication and Twitter's probably the best. He's, he's a good follow, by the way. Uh, and thank God that Twitter exists because that's how we got connected. So uh, John, I can't thank you enough, man, for uh, coming on the latest episode of the, the On the Touchline podcast. And uh, Wish you uh, personally the best in your coaching journey and uh, wherever soccer continues to take you, but also wish your family the best. And um, yeah, if, uh, if you're ever up at three in the morning and you need, need a friend to talk to, there's a, uh, a really good chance that I'm probably going to be awake too. So I appreciate the invite. It's been awesome to talk to you and I, I really do enjoy what you're doing. I think it's phenomenal and um, it's refreshing to, to, to see somebody take the, the podcast platform really seriously because uh, for a long time I felt that we needed more of this. So thank you, Jason, for putting this together. It's really good. 
Yeah. Well, thanks, John. Uh, that, that means a lot to me. And um, it has been uh, sort of like my coaching adventure. It's sort of been this, you know, crazy windy road. Um, and I've, you know, at times have asked myself, what am I doing? Uh, but I just really enjoy it. And I really like, my, my wife asked me this question recently. She said, you know, like, why do you do the podcast? And honestly, uh, it has been connecting with people like you and Chris and, you know, John Peronich and, and other people around this country, coaches, um, you know, some of the, the high level coaches that I've been able to talk to. Everybody has been interesting to me. Everybody's had a, just a really unique and sort of, uh, you know, inspirational story of how the game has kind of been a big part of their life. And, um, I have no freaking clue where any of this is going to go. Uh, you know, yeah, it'd be cool someday to be like professional podcaster, but uh, you know what? If it connects me to a few folks that I didn't know before, I'm I'm good with that too. And uh, yeah, man, if you're uh, if you're ever up this way for anything in the in the Pittsburgh area, definitely uh, take you out for a coffee and uh, you know chat that way for sure. Yeah, no, I think I think I'll say this. You asked me about writing. I think. Um, power of the pen is huge. The power of the voice is even bigger. And I think this is yet another uh, platform that people are, should be leveraging is the the podcast to get ideas out. So you're doing great work. Um, and, and, you know, I, I used to do, I used to host a ton of podcasts. Um, my podcast partner, unfortunately passed away on my birthday, mm. but um, I started to from podcasting because um, I realized I wasn't doing like a good enough job. And it's like, I'm glad that I uh, took that, that point to reflect kind of like my coaching it's like okay step back and then kind of see what else is out there and learn i think i'm so glad i discovered yours because um it's been refreshing to say the least so the power of the voice is huge and i'm glad that you're doing it so um and i'll take you in that coffee if i'm ever up in that area and if you're ever in st louis or chicago yeah. and i'm in the area coffee's on me and uh, we'll talk we'll talk shop My thanks to John Townsend for not only coming on as a guest of the show, but also being a recurring co-host that you're going to hear more from throughout season two. John, really look forward to working with you uh, this season. And uh, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we've been able to get connected. Really like your soccer mind and think you'll add a whole lot to the podcast. Speaking of the podcast, if you have not subscribed to the show, well, shame on you. You need to go to your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe today. That way, when new episodes of the show come available every Wednesday and on some weeks where you get a bonus episode, you will not miss a show. So we're available on 11 different podcasting platforms, places like Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, you name it. Uh, use your favorite podcasting platform and connect with the show that way. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, go there now, leave a five-star rating and a brief review of the show. And the link of how to do that is in the show notes, so go check it out. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at SoccerCoachJB. And my DMs are always open that if you have a question or a recommendation for a guest for the show, 
I would be more than happy to, uh, to read your DM. New episode coming your way once again next week. And thank you so much for listening to the new season of the show. Can't wait to share the rest of the episodes with you here very, very soon. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.